Well, good morning, and I'm glad that you're here this morning. It's great to be in this place. This morning, we're going to be going through First um, Corinthians 5. Again, it's continued from last week, so if you missed that sermon, you might want to might want to give it a listen, but if you were here last week, you might have been in a mode of just reflection this entire week, trying to digest those words from Paul to the church in Corinth. Um, we're going to continue in worship with this next song, and um, as we as we go on into that, I want to just present this idea to you. Sometimes our, our view of God is distorted. We allow the way that others have treated us or reacted to us or reacted to things that we've done to maybe influence the way that we think that God may think of us. We might think that he is just waiting for us to mess up so he can condemn us. We might feel like he's just ready to turn his back um, at the first sign of failure or when we fall short. Or we may think that our God just keeps a long list of things that we continue to do wrong over and over and is just expecting us to just trip and fall again and again. But Paul tells us straight out in Ephesians um, that God is so rich, so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave us. And that's just amazing that he purchased our freedom and forgiveness with the son of or the blood of his son Jesus. And I just I feel like to not accept that freedom and forgiveness is an insult to God because he he paid such such a huge price for it. So let's just keep worshiping and as we sing this song to him, please embrace that freedom. Please accept that forgiveness and and be able to just stand up, dust yourself off, and we can just continue to live and have that fresh start because of God's grace and mercy. It's free. 
Dear God, there isn't a day that goes by, Father, that we don't need your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you so much for not giving up on us when we're so ready to throw in the towel and we're so convinced that we've done it for the last time. That's just it. There's nothing, there's no way that you would embrace us again. But Lord, you do. Father, you forgive us. Lord, you you cover us with your mercy and your grace. Lord, you withhold punishment that we deserve, Father. And you also cover our sins, Lord God, when we don't deserve it. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we know that it's your love that that draws you to do that. And we just thank you for that too. God, we come before you today. And we really, really, Lord, want to speak, want you to speak to us, Father. And we want to hear from you this morning through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's so good to see you today. My name is Dennis. You walked up. It was so funny to watch so many of you squinting in that beautiful sun and snow combination. I love this kind of weather. It, it, I, I honestly believe I'm a plant. I live off photosynthesis and light days like this, man. It just it does something for me. So really glad you chose to be here today. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get right started with a video clip that I suspect will make you do some smiling. Here we go. That's great, isn't it? My kid Facebooked that, and you know I'm not always the biggest uh, 
fan of, you know, puppy videos and baby. This one just works. I mean, I watched it again and again. It just inside, it really does something for you. To me, it screams carefree. I mean, you just love the whole thing. The the song selection is, it's perfect. Uh, Here you got this kid clutching this leash as if he could do something about it. You know, that dog probably weighs three times what he does. That dog could drag him off anywhere he wants to go, but the dog's so cooperative. And I, I love the way he gingerly lays that leash down. You know, it's just perfect. And he's starting to turn away and just does a peek to make sure the dog isn't going anywhere. I mean, that dog is perfectly trained. And then, you know, puddle once, puddle twice. I don't know if you're a mom, you're probably going, oh, don't do that. And then you're going, oh, just have fun. Have a good time. It's great. He's going through this and having fun. And then he gets a little bored, apparently, goes back, picks up that leash and heads on his way. Carefree. What a life. Don't you wish you had that life? Don't you wish that's the way life felt every day? You were, just, you were just out to find the best puddle you could find so you could go do some splashing. Well, the truth is uh, life isn't always carefree. Last week, uh, we ended the sermon, and I, and I left you in a place most of us don't like to live. The place is called Tension. It's the land of the unresolved. I'm not sure that there's ever been a generation of people that likes living in the land of the unresolved. But I suspect our generation is worse than most in this regard. Movies and television, dramas and sitcoms have programmed us to believe that intensely complex situations can be resolved in 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes, at the outside two-and-a-half-hour movie. But by the time it's done... Every complexity is going to be ironed out and perfect. Our family gets into watching this uh, Restaurant Impossible show where the guy comes in and, and I mean, this, this restaurant will just be a disaster. The place is a wreck. The management is a wreck. The, re- the menu is awful. Everything about it isn't working. And in three days, we go from the worst restaurant in the city to, oh, my word, now the money is flowing in and customers are there and everything's perfect. That's the way we're wired. We're used to quick fixes. Every once in a while, a writer or a producer doesn't do that. They, they don't wrap it with a nice, neat bow. Do you remember the first time you watched the movie Mrs. Doubtfire? I don't know about you. I was, I was a little ticked off. You come to the end of the movie and what? There's no happily ever and after. Mom and dad don't get back together. Everything's all back to normal. Kind of glad they left it the way they did because that's the way life works works more often than not. Everything doesn't get wrapped up with a pretty bow after two and a half hours. Instead, they had to go through a kind of a, hey, let's make, a, let's make the best of the mess we've made of our lives. Tension. Tension. Now, I'd love to say by, that by the end of these 30 minutes, I will resolve all of the tension of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But the truth is, we will not. I'm going to provide you what I think will be some uh, intellectually satisfying answers, but moral messes are seldom easily or fully resolved. There's always a little bit of tension left over. We're going to do the same thing we did last week. I want, you to, I want you to enter into this chapter. I want you to hear the words of Paul, the 13 verses of chapter 5, both the topic and what he says in terms of what to do about it. <coughs> so if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or you can follow with us on the screen. Paul says, starting in verse 1, I hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You're so proud of yourselves. But you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. You should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit. And so, the power, and so will the power of the Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Go to verse 6. It says, your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a, a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. 
Then you will be like a, a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. <coughs> when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or who are greedy or who cheat people or who worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or who cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove this evil person from among you. Now, what we've been doing over the past several weeks, and we're going to be here for quite a while, is just going a chapter at a five times, sometimes a paragraph at a time, through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's called 1 Corinthians. And in this passage, he lays out a situation, a situation that's a real mess. We covered a lot of the details of it last week, and we're not going to review everything every week. Actually, this portion is uh, will last week and next week combined with this week, we'll cover chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you want to catch it, you can go to the podcast and you can catch what we talked about last week. But basically, he describes an immoral relationship in the church. We have a man living in sin with his stepmother. And he refers to this as sexual immorality. It's the Greek word pornea. Sexual immorality, by the biblical standard, is any sexual union outside of the bond of marriage between a man and a woman. So sex outside of the context of a marriage between one man and one woman would fall under the biblical definition of pornea. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the situation, but ironically, it is not the problem. That is not the problem that Paul is addressing. The problem is the way the church of Corinth is treating this case of sexual immorality. The church is embracing the relationship. Paul says, you're so proud of yourselves. He says, you're boasting about this is terrible. They weren't only tolerating sexual immorality. They were embracing it. They were proud of their response. They, they felt that they had arrived at a level of spiritual maturity that was able to overlook uh, any sin. Because the situation is so far out of control. I mean, it's just gone so far out of control. Paul is very directive and very clear in prescribing a solution. He says, this is what you've got to do. And we saw the steps in verse 3. Call a meeting of the church. Remove this man from your fellowship. Don't even eat with him. Hand him over to Satan. Then he reminds them to not associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, Greedy, worships idols, abusive, drunkard, cheats people. And he says, don't even eat with such people. What this passage does is raise a lot of practical questions. We read this passage, we go, okay, what's going on here? How is the church supposed to implement this kind of a passage? So let's start to unfold just the implications and applications that we find in Paul's words. And we're going to do this just slowly and carefully. And today, I want to spend the majority of our time just talking about the spirit of the passage. Because I think that's important. Even beyond the words and the directions, what's the spirit? What's God's spirit in this? What's Paul's spirit in this? What's the church's spirit supposed to be? We need to know the heart of the passage. So first, I want to address... Uh, God's spirit in this situation. You see, it's possible to read this passage and think God is just, he's a hater, that he hates sinful people, or at least he hates certain kinds of sinful people. But the exact opposite is true. And any one of you who is a parent knows that to be the case. You know for a fact uh, that a loving parent at times has to help a child to come back to the path. This passage is not about punishment. Paul isn't saying you need to do this, and God isn't saying you need to do this because you need to punish the man. That's not at all. It's not about anger or hatred on God's part. It's about loving discipline. The kind of correction that a parent administers in order to restore their child to the right path. 
Hebrews 12 addresses the discipline of God. And I want you to look at some some verses from that passage. Starting with verse 5, it says, And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? Remember, if if we believe in Jesus Christ, we're children of God the Father. He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. I hear that word, hear those words for a moment. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Now, if you're a parent and you've had to discipline your child, you know your child has two reactions to discipline. One, you hate me. You're doing this because you hate me. And guess what? I'm going to return the favor. I hate you. That, that's, what, that's what happens typically in discipline. What's the passage say? The Lord doesn't discipline because he hates us, and he's not looking for a response of hatred. It says the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Verse 7 says, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father? Tell you what, that child is not the child you want to invite to your house. It gets really interesting when a person has been allowed to go without any discipline whatsoever. If God doesn't discipline you, verse 8, you, if God doesn't discipline you as he does all his children, you know what it means? It means you are illegitimate and not really his child at all. I mean, Paul, the, the writer of Hebrews is flatly saying, discipline is a sign that I'm a child of God. Because children of God, God God takes care of the kids in his family. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of our fathers, of our father, of your spirits, and live forever? Verse 10, for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share his holiness. He goes on to say, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Isn't that the truth? I mean, nobody enjoys being disciplined. Not at all. In fact, the Bible says it's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained this way. The goal is to bring us back to the path. The goal is to bring us back to God. That's why God disciplines us. You see, I truly believe the evil one is on a mission. He's been on this mission ever since Eden when he had the conversation with Eve. Satan has been trying his best to distort the image of God in our eyes. He's been doing his best to try to get us to see God as someone other than he is. He lied to Eve. He said, God forbid that fruit because he knows if you touch that fruit, if you eat that fruit, you'll be just like him. And we've been going through that same distortion from the enemy ever since. Uh, God wants to portray, or Satan wants to portray God our Father as a hater. Someone who just hates people. Someone who makes life hard and miserable on us. Someone who just enjoys saying no. The commands of God aren't because he sits in heaven going, how can I tick these kids off today? What can I do to frustrate them? How can, I, how can I make them a little bit more miserable? That's not what's going on. God designed us, and he knows what's best for us. He knows what's best for us. <clears throat> Satan has distorted the concept of discipline, too. So many people have suffered abuse at the hand of a parent or at the hand of a caretaker. They've, they've, they've experienced such abuse that they can't see that correction can actually be a loving act and not a hateful act. And so even something like that, Satan has distorted what people do in order that we look at God in the wrong way. We have a hard time realizing that discipline is a loving act and it actually can be administered for the sake of a child rather than to hurt a child. God's Spirit in this act of discipline, is not a spirit of hate or rage. You shouldn't see hate and rage in 1 Corinthians 5. It's not there. It's a spirit of care, and it's a spirit of love. He wants to bring his wandering child back home. He doesn't want to cast us away. He wants to bring us back home. And sometimes radical action, severe discipline, is necessary to wake us up, to bring us back to God. Now, I want you to look at one of the toughest verses in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 said, 
Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. You know, the hand him over to Satan part of that verse causes us to not be able to hear anything else. It causes us to not be able to see the most important part of the verse. So that, what's the reason for the discipline? So that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. He's not consigning this guy to hell. He's holding out hope of restoration. He's holding out hope of repentance through an act of severe but loving discipline. The ultimate goal of true discipline is not punishment. Even when we discipline our children, the ultimate goal is not punishment. That's not it at all. It's not revenge. It's not retribution. It's restoration. It's God bringing us back into a right relationship with himself. True discipline is not an act of hatred. It is really an act of compassion and true love. The truest love is willing to discipline. God's goal is restoration. And God's spirit is is completely loving in this passage. Now, having said that, what about our spirit? What about the spirit of the church as described in this passage? How should the church approach this action? How should the church approach discipline? When we move to uh, 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to read these words in that chapter. We'll read, Do you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who are idol worshipers or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes who practice sexual homosexuality or who are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See those words again. Some of you were once like that. Some of you were once like that. Settle in there for a moment. Just just let that sink into your mind and heart. Some of you were once like that. Those words speak volumes about the spirit of the church when it comes to the issues in this passage. We are to approach the sin of another person with an absolute spirit of humility and nothing less and nothing else. Why? We were like that. If we were like that, and we were, the Bible says it, then our spirit is not to be one of judgment and condemnation, but of compassion and of true humility. We don't implement the instructions of 1 Corinthians 5 because we think we're better than others. It is because we've been there. And we don't want to see other people stay there. We want God's best for them, just like we want God's best for ourselves. Years ago, Kim gave me a gift, kind of a gag gift. It's a stone, and I'm, and I'm quite sure it is not the original. Uh, engraved on it, it says... First stone, and then it has the passage engraved, John 8, 7. You know the story. Jesus is challenging a crowd that's about to kill a woman because she's been caught in the very act of adultery. And in that moment, Jesus says in John 8, 7, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. The passage goes on to say, When the accusers heard this, They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was in the middle of the crowd with the woman. No one could cast the stone. Not one person could cast the stone. Why? Some of you were once like that. Some of you were once like that. We have to understand the spirit of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 We tend to read these words and the prescribed actions as judgmental and harsh, as throwing stones. But if what Paul was talking about was condemning and judging, no one could do a thing, not one of us. Even Paul could not have taken action in this situation. 
Paul himself says in, in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. He's not just talking in extremes. He's not just talking in hyperbole. I think Paul really believes it. Paul looks back on his life before Christ, a man who, who had people arrested and condemned because of their belief in Jesus, a man who stood as Stephen was being stoned to death, and he's the one that held the coats, and he's the one that gave the blessing to the event. He knows who he was. He knows that some of us were just like them. He understands that about himself. Paul is not talking about judging. He's not talking about condemning. He's talking about a loving, humble process of discipline that holds out hope of complete restoration, bringing the person back to God. What is the spirit of 1 Corinthians 5? What's this passage all about? On God's part, it is true parental love. He cares for his kids, and he's willing to offer correction that longs for restoration. On the part of the church whether it is Corinth or our own, it is a spirit of absolute humility. Not one of judgment, but one of longing for repentance and reconciliation to God and reconciliation in relationships. Please don't hear the words of this chapter as hateful. Hate is not present in this chapter. The opposite is really true. Hebrews says that the Lord loves those he disciplines. He doesn't hate them. He is showing love. He disciplines um, those that he cares about. Now, we've taken up quite a bit of time this morning talking about the spirit of the chapter, and we need to do that, both the spirit on the part of God and the spirit on the part of the church. It's important because if we miss the spirit, the actions that we take could be misapplied. We could actually use this passage in a wrong way, a way that is cruel and not helpful at all. I think what we need to do is really define biblical discipline. What is it? What does discipline look like? Discipline is an act of love. And maybe we should just end there. You know, so that we really... Discipline is an act of love. Administered with humility and tears. So that the believer living in open and unrepentant rebellion against God might reconsider his or her sinful actions, repent, and be reconciled to God and restored to the fellowship of the church. There are a few points in this passage that are vital to understand if they're to be applied correctly. First, Paul's transparent frustration in this chapter is with the church. It's not with the wayward believer. As you read it, you hear frustration, and it's there. It is real. Paul is frustrated. But his intensity is not directed toward the person committing sexual immorality. It's with the church that was embracing the sin. This is huge. We talked about it last week. The Corinthian church was proud and boastful. And they were, able, they were willing to overlook even an incestuous relationship. 1 Corinthians 5 is a last resort. It really is. It's a a last resort. They had let the situation get so far out of hand that radical, something radical needed to be done. The second thing we see here is that the discipline to be administered uh, was not because the man was living in sin with his stepmother. That's, That's just the surface issue. But it's because the man was a professing believer who was living in ongoing, persistent, direct rebellion against God and God's desires. It's not so much the act itself, but what the act represented. The act represented a person who was saying, I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what God says. Paul says this action is to be taken when a person claims to be a believer but lives in open, sinful, non-repentant rebellion against God. 
In verse 9, we already saw it. He said, when I wrote you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin. And he goes on to list other sins, who is greedy, worships idols, is abusive, is a drunkard, cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. Paul is talking about our our dealings with other people in the church. He's talking about our relationships within the church and that we're to have accountable relationships. He said, I meant that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer and yet does these things. The third issue that we see here is that this wasn't just about sexual sin. The issue is living in an outright, unrepentant, rebellious state against God, a state of ongoing, unchecked sin. Look at the screen again. Paul doesn't just talk about sexual immorality. He lists greedy, cheating people, worshiping idols, abusiveness, and drunkenness. And in truth, the list doesn't stop there. The list is just, it's representative. And the issue is not the actions themselves. The issue is the heart that comes to the surface and is made transparent through sinful behavior. This is a believer who's saying, I'm going to live my way and nobody can do anything about it. Not even God. I'm listening to no one else. It's a pattern of unrepentant rebellion. You see, you might look at some of these actions and go, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble. You know, I'm, I was abusive once. I've been drunk before. I've cheated people. But Paul drives us beyond the action to see the heart, to see what's underlying. The question is, is the person trying to change? Are they struggling against the sin? Are they wanting to be changed? Is it a person who's longing to be freed from a binding habit? The passage is not suggesting that we all get to show up at church when we're finally perfect. If that were the case, uh, we would not need to rent this room on Sunday mornings. Crickets would be chirping in here. The issue is the heart. Is my heart soft? Is my heart moving in the direction of God, or is my heart hard? Again, we can take a page from parenting. You know, when I discipline my kids, sometimes the thing that they did wrong isn't really that big, but their attitude just stinks. I mean, they just, they have a horrible attitude about where they are. Or they may have done something that was really awful, but they are already moving down the path of repentance. A good parent looks beyond the action to say, what's the heart? What's going on in the heart? Spirit matters. And the same is true with God. The passage is not suggesting that we never allow anyone in the building who sins. Again, this place would be a ghost town if that were the case. I can tell you this for certain. You'd have 30 minutes of silence every Sunday morning because I couldn't stand here. And for that matter, nobody else could. We all sin. We all do. But where's the heart? Do we want to? Do we want to sin more than we want God? Do we refuse to change? Do we refuse to give up our sin? Do we refuse to move toward God? Everyone sins. But you see, some of us are acutely aware that it breaks the heart of God, and we don't want to. We want to be forgiven. We want to do better. We want to change. We want to be transformed. We want to grow. That's what Paul's talking about. We need to see movement toward growth. You know, we've talked about this before, but it really fits in this moment. Both King Saul and King David sinned. In fact, when you look at the sins, as far as I'm concerned, uh, David committed the bigger sin. David, while married, commits adultery with a woman, and then in order to cover up the adultery, murders the woman's husband. Uh, you know, on the list of, when, even among people who, you know, aren't real big on sin, they go, those are biggie sins. Th- those, ones, those ones are weighty. Yet David was able to remain king of Israel, and Saul was dethroned. Why? What's the difference? When Saul was confronted, he lied and denied. He refused to repent. When David was confronted, he confessed and repented immediately. It's a beautiful psalm that he wrote, Psalm 51. 
And in chapter 17, he says, or verse 17, he says these words. The sacrifice you desire is a broken heart, a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. What does it all come down to? It's not about the actions. It's about the heart behind the actions. God is looking for a repentant spirit. He's not looking for people who are perfect. He's looking for people whose hearts are soft, moving in his direction, who are sensitive to sin, and who want to make a change. I hope this is all making sense. I hope the spirit of it is helping you to start to see how the pieces come together. Please, again, I beg you, don't see 1 Corinthians 5 as as something hateful or brutal or judgmental. It is not. This passage describes a process whereby a tightly knit group of believers can provide loving accountability for each other and correction when needed, when somebody goes off the path to bring them back into a right relationship with God. So as I said at the beginning, we're not done here yet. Last week, uh, I commented that it would have been great if we could have just done kind of an all-day seminar on this chapter alone. There's a lot here, and we don't have that luxury. But instead, we're just breaking it down into logical chunks, bite-sized pieces, and walking through it a step at a time. So last week, we looked at the situation. This week, we look at the spirit of the text. And next week, we're going to really look very practically at how it all works. What would this work look like in the life of a modern church? We're going to be shifting to communion right now. You know, we get this privilege every week of taking a piece of unleavened bread and a cup of juice in our hands. And they remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. Well, actually, when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, hear Paul's direct commands as to what you're supposed to do in communion and how it's supposed to work. One of the instructions that's important to know, he says, every time you come to communion, you should examine yourselves. This is part of the way that we make sure that our heart stays soft. Examine ourselves. Take the time to ask ourselves that question. Is my heart in a right relationship with God? If it's not, to ask for forgiveness, to spend time in repentance. And so as the bread and the juice come today, we'll be, we'll be listening to a song that, that talks about the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And as we do, would you take the time to humbly reflect and offer up to God perhaps areas where you need to say, God, I've been holding on to this sin too long. My relationship with you matters more than this idol that I've been holding on to. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, I pray that in these coming moments, you would give us soft hearts, not to look around the room at somebody else, but to look at ourselves, to look deep in ourselves and ask the question, am I where I'm supposed to be with God? None of us will ever be perfect in this life. We won't. But you always want us to be progressing in the right direction. So if there's something we're holding on to today, I pray that we would release our grip, that we would let go and replace what we've had in our hands with you to get that relationship restored once again. In Jesus' name, amen.
We've had a lot of time to be quiet before you, God, to hear those words again and again, praising Jesus, our Savior. Blows me away the times in my life that I just choose to live in sin rather than embrace you completely. And I know we all go through that. We all have these moments that for some reason we, we think that we find greater satisfaction in something in this world than we could ever find in you. And it's in those moments that I'm thankful that, that your loving discipline comes along to, to shake us by the shoulders and remind us of what life is supposed to really be all about and, and who we're really supposed to be bra- embracing, and that's you and not sin. God, I'm thankful that, uh, that when you saw us wandering away from you, you didn't just give up. You didn't just say, oh, well, that's, that's done with the humans. That, they're worthless. Your heart was broken by our sin. And yet, even though it was broken, you couldn't let us go. You couldn't let us go, and so you sent your son. Your son was the solution to the problem. And he died, and now we get to live for him. God, I pray that you would be drawing us more and more and more into a walk of of purity with you. One, One where we're not just good because it's good to be good. One where we desire to live in a way that pleases you because you've given everything for us. Help us not to resist your correction, but to listen and to obey because you made us. You know how we work best. You know what will make us happiest. And we want to do what you desire. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our servers are going to come and collect the offering right now. You can place your offering in the basket as well as uh, the card that you filled out during the service. And while they do, I, a couple of things I want to say, and really they all center around the word thank you. Um, i got to admit to you, preaching 1 Corinthians 5 is not the most comfortable passage to preach in the world. There, there are lots of other things that, that would be happier, lighter, sweeter. We'd all walk away smiling. We might even laugh a couple more times during the service. But I'm grateful that we're part of a church that says we need to hear all of what God says and not just the parts that make us feel comfortable. So I thank you for your spirit as we walk through this passage that you're willing to, you're willing to really listen to all of what God has to say and then to apply that. Beyond that, I'm just... I. I continue to be overwhelmingly grateful for so many people who week after week either do one small thing or do a ton of things in order that just this can happen and that kids students can uh, spend time together learning about God and small groups can meet there's so many people that put in effort along the way that makes a huge difference. It's on mornings like this that I'm reminded we're, we're doing setup and the black cabinets come in. And even though the room is warm, when you open those cabinets, 10 degree air comes blasting out of that thing. And you're holding metal pipes that are chilly and everything else. And the group that's doing that, they do it with joy. They do it because they know what's happening here right now. So thank you so much for the parts that you play, in order that people can come into that relationship, right relationship with God. We're going to stand right now, and we're going to sing our praise to God. Let's go.
living for God who gave everything for you. I'll see you next Sunday.